Welcome to another episode of The Artsy Raven, a show about writing and publishing with your host, J.F. Garrard. Welcome to another episode of The Artsy Raven. I'm your host, J.F. Garrard. Today, we have a very special guest. Uh, one of my professors, um, Beth Kaplan, is a guest on today's show. After 10 years as a professional actress, Beth Kaplan left the stage to earn an MFA in creative writing from UBC. She's the author of four nonfiction books, a biography, two memoirs, and a guide to creative writing that's the textbook for her courses. Her new memoir, Loose Woman, My Odyssey from Lost to Found, was launched in September 2020. She has taught memoir and personal writing at Ryerson University for 27 years and also for 14 years at the University of Toronto, where in 2012 she was given the Excellence in Teaching Award. So welcome, Beth. Hi, good to be here, Jamie. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you started writing and teaching? Well, two different things, two very different things. Uh, so I was one of those kids who loved reading and writing from a very, very early age. So really, as soon as I could read, I was immersed in books. And as soon as I could hold a pen I, or a pencil, I started to tell stories and write letters. I still have letters that I wrote when I was six and seven years old. Uh, it just seemed to be an automatic thing for me to, to want to write. And um, so, but I also acted. And uh, so as I was growing up, I wanted to be both an actress and a writer. And so the, the acting came first, just really by chance, I was given a professional job, acting job while I was still in university. And so I spent, as, as you said, I spent 10 years as an actress before leaving the stage to, to become a writer. And then I was lucky enough um, that a friend of mine who was running the continuing studies department at Ryerson asked me if I would teach there in 1994. And uh, of course, as a writer, um, there was no way that I was gonna earn a living. So it, it was a wonderful thing to start teaching. I knew absolutely nothing about teaching writing, but it's turned out to be a, a great joy in my life. I'm still, I still love doing what I do and it does help me earn a living, which writing most emphatically does not. But did being an actress help you sort of with your dialogue as you write like like because you have to tell someone else's story and then you transition into telling your own stories like I think the experience helped or well the experience certainly helped with being a teacher there's no question that I feel you know when you say I won an award as an as a teacher I do feel that often writers are introspective quiet people who like to be sitting alone in a room. And so when you put them in front of a classroom, they can sometimes be awkward and uncomfortable. And I am a show off by nature. So absolutely, I love teaching. It is like acting for me. A class is like a show. Um, people need to be engaged. And I feel it's a job, my job to make sure that people are engaged and interested and even laughing. But yes, it's true that there's something about acting that also helps with writing. To me, good writing has to do with rhythm and music. And so it always needs to be read out loud and you need to feel the music of your own words. 
And I think having spent 10 years also speaking words has helped me, um, not necessarily with dialogue so much, but just to capture rhythm and music in writing. Now, when we met, I enrolled in your memoir writing course. Yes. Uh, did you also teach other courses like during oh. your tenure? Okay. No, okay. this is my my specialty. This is my hood. Um, I uh, I've taught it under different names. So for a while at U of T, it was you know personal essay writing, um, and it's got a different name at U of T than at Ryerson. But it's the same course, and it's really about how to tell your own story. So it's about figuring out, first of all, the most important stories that you have to tell, and which is already difficult because it really means doing a journey inside into your past, uh, into your present, being able to tell the truth about what matters most deeply to you. But then also you need to learn the craft to tell the story well, because if you have a wonderful story to tell, but you don't know how to tell it, then nobody's going to get it. But on the other hand, do you have hand, any quick tips for people that want to do this? That want to write a small piece? Well, quick tips. That's that's kind of part <laughs> of a book, a textbook, which will help you. Um, so, well, what one of the things that I ask people to do in class is what I call the Spielberg list, which is to think back over the span of your life. And whether you're young or old, I mean, if you're old, you have a much longer span, but young people, of course, have many stories to tell as well. So to think of that arc of your life and to try to pick out 10 pivotal moments where something changed for you forever and, though, and to make a list of those so that you're not wasting your time dithering around telling stories about, you know, you go, well, that was great. I think I'll write about that. And you finish it and you realize it really doesn't matter. It's not a big story. Why would anyone else want to read it? You have to remember that you want, if you want other people to be engaged by your story, for it to matter to them, it has to matter deeply to you. And so you have to really spend some time looking at that life of yours and figuring out those moments when your life changed. And those can be big moments, you know, obviously a cancer diagnosis, falling in love, losing your job, you know, things like that are big moments. But there are also moments that are invisible to anybody else when something in you shifts. The moment you realize that if you don't stop drinking, you're gonna die. You know, that may be invisible to someone else, but that is of course a huge pivotal moment for you. So that's one of the jobs to do. That's on the side of figuring out the important stories. On the, the craft side, it's important to read books about craft, to read memoirs, to do a lot of reading. It really helps if you take a class or you find an editor, you need someone who can give you feedback about your technique and craft. So is this the sort of type of technique you use when you were writing Loose Women? Like how long did it, like when did you get the idea to write it and how long did it take you? Well, 
that it was one of my Spielberg moments, you know, that year. So my first memoir was about the year 1964-65, which was a huge year, was the year of Beatlemania. And it was the year that my family lived in France for a year. So there was really a lot going on that year. And then I jumped ahead to the year 1979 when I was 28 and really at a turning point in my life. I'd been acting for 10 years and it felt that something was wrong for me. It didn't, you know, I was successful. I was really doing well as an actress, but something inside felt that it wasn't right. And I didn't know how to escape. I didn't know what to do. And I ended up taking this journey, which changed my life. And I came back to Vancouver to my previous life as a different person. So that was, that's a huge Spielberg moment, a huge moment of change. So I always knew that I would write about that time. And it was just a matter of clearing the other books and the other things out of the way. I started about four years ago. I'm very slow at these things. Um, so, you know, on and off with many other things going on in my life. It took about four years from beginning to end. Okay, so how did you manage to get the book published in the end? Like, I know we were having conversations about different routes. There's the traditional publishing where you sort yeah. of beg people to look at your manuscript and hope they like it and the self-publishing where you do it yourself. But I think you went with something in the middle, right? Well, I went with what's called a hybrid publisher. So that is a publishing professional who has a lot of credibility, but, um, and so will only accept certain projects and gives a very good edit, you know, a lot of editorial input. It's a really wonderful team, but I pay for it myself. So it's still not what's called a legacy publisher. I did feel that this time the memoir was worthy of one of those. And I spent more than a year sending the manuscript out. And this is, I'd already had it edited. I worked with three different editors whom I paid to edit it along the way. So I had an editor in Vancouver from the theater in Vancouver who, who knew the world that I was writing about, which was very valuable. And then two editors here who were very useful just technically about what was working and what wasn't working. So, and then I paid nearly $1,000 to have it copy edited. So I felt by that point, it was in pristine shape and really ready to be seen. And I sent it out. And of the 13 publishers I sent it to, most of them didn't even acknowledge receipt of the manuscript or of the query, let alone say no. So it was a very disheartening process. Of course, this was all during COVID. And so there was, you know, there was a lot of chaos as well going on in the world and, and particularly in the world of publishing. So one publisher actually at the end did say yes, he was interested in it. And then at the end, he said, because of COVID, his whole spring list had been pushed to the fall and he had no idea what was gonna to happen to his fall list. And in the end, he didn't feel he could take on something else. So COVID really didn't help. But I was very happy in the end to go with Iguana Books, which was really a wonderful group of people to work with. And the issue is simply that you have to put money up front but then you get back almost all of the proceeds. So 
in the end for with my two of my three other books are also published with hybrid publishers and I have not lost money and on the writing book I have made money. Do you have any input in the cover design or anything like that? You'd certainly do, absolutely. With a hybrid publisher, you do. With a with a legacy publisher, you don't. I mean, they will listen to you if you're screaming that you hate it, but they really get get the final word. And for example, I have a good friend who just had a memoir out with um, I think it's with Harper Collins, and I and the cover is absolutely dreadful. You know, it's just awful. <laughs> so there's no guarantee when you're with a legacy publisher that the cover is going to be good. I had a lot of, in, I mean, I essentially really helped with the design of all my covers. So when this, so do you do the marketing or does the uh, publisher help you? With well, that? that's <laughs> the big, that's the big, horrible issue looming over every writer. I mean, the myth is that if you go with HarperCollins or McClellan Stewart or, you know, which now is part of Random House, I mean, you know, on top of everything else, a lot of the mid-sized publishing houses in Canada have been subsumed into the big publishing houses, which mostly are owned by a conglomerate in Germany. So, you know, the old days when a publisher was willing to take a, a gamble on a, a writer to say, well, this book may not be the best, but we sense that there's a writer of promise here. So we'll, you know, we'll publish this one because we know the next one is going to be much better. Nobody does that anymore. But also the myth is that those, you know, Random House has a giant marketing wing where there's all these people who will be sending you on book tours and you know doing publicity and that again is a complete myth you're really expected to do most of it yourself and even in a book proposal that you send to an agent or to a publishing house you have to come up with a marketing plan and you're the one who has to tell them how they should market the book and who is the target audience and what are comparable books to this title. And, you know, and you really think, really, you know, I spend years writing this book and now I have to tell you, the publishing house, how to sell it. You know, it's I mean, when you think of what would have happened if they would told Alice Monroe, you know, that she had to have 100,000 Instagram followers before they would publish her. You know, that's the case now. Yeah. They wouldn't publish Alice Monroe because you can bet that she would not be on Instagram posting selfies of herself eating lunch. But that's what's required these days. You have to be very, very lucky. It's called a platform. And if you don't have a platform, which is an awful lot of followers or a famous name, then you're very lucky to find to get into one of the big presses. So yes, I have been responsible for marketing the book and it is not my area of expertise or strength. I'm not good at it. I don't enjoy it. I've really tried uh, to do things like this to, you know, I had a book launch. I've tried to connect to book clubs. I did even hire a publicist to try to get it reviews. Um, you know, it's, it's a slog that is to me, writing the book is the easy part, you know, marketing the book is really brutal. 
Yeah, recently I released a book that I helped edit and we actually did hire someone, a marketing company to help us. And we spent so much money sending out the books and I can't even tell you if it got reviewed or not. They wanted print yes. copies, right? Yes. And that was like, you know, a couple hundred bucks down the tube and I haven't seen any reviews and I'm like well yes I should follow up on that and you know ask them did you enjoy the book I mean did you, you I'm assuming you received the book but it costs money right all these it activities costs a lot of money I actually hired a really well-known publicist you know I I got some money unexpectedly I mean a lot of money and I hired a publicist this time in Vancouver because a lot of the book is set in Vancouver and I thought that would be the market for it. And with all of that money, I, I got two podcast interviews. That was it, not a review, not a mainstream interview of any kind, absolutely nothing. So it's, I mean, I'm not denigrating podcasts at all. You know, they are wonderful things, um, but it's, it's just very, very hard. I hope I don't sound too negative, you know, I mean, because what I tell my students is we write because we have stories we need to tell. And, you know, so Loose Woman, you know, has not sold very many copies because of the marketing, even though the reviews that I've received from friends and from strangers have all been really good. And now it's been, it was shortlisted and now it's a finalist for a big book prize. So it's called the Whistler Independent Book Awards in BC. And that is my own, that's a big hope. That's a big thing for me that it's been nominated for an award that somebody noticed it, you know, somebody said, this is a really good book, even though it hasn't had a, a single review in a newspaper. So those things happen, but that you have to do yourself. You have to be aware of the book awards and send your book in. You have to enter these things. You know, I entered the Stephen Leacock book award for humor. I knew my book wouldn't win because it's not that funny. And because Thomas King was one of the other people, you know, and I knew he's very funny and he's a wonderful writer, but I entered and it, and they asked for seven print copies, you know, to be sent to them. I mean, and, and plus there's a, a fee. So again, that's an additional expense and time to keep track and to enter these things. But if the book is noticed, it's such a boost. I can't tell you how wonderful it is. Okay, we are going to be running out of time soon. So what is the latest project you're working on? My next, um, I, I have decided to, tr to work on essays for a while because it's so much easier to get short pieces out. And I have, um, so I have a, a piece that's appearing in the new quarterly in the fall. And I have a bunch of other essays that I have uh, queries about out at the moment, which I'm hoping will be accepted. I am working on a piece about my uncle who was a world bridge champion. So he lived in New York. My father's younger brother was one of the most famous bridge players in the world. 
and a very interesting eccentric man, Edgar Kaplan, who was the author of many books about bridge and the editor of Bridge World magazine and, you know, a world champion bridge player. I know nothing about bridge. I'm not interested in bridge, but it's a, it's a really interesting story about this man and the bond that he and I developed. So that's what I'm working on now. Is he still alive? Like, will he no, be able to read it? He died, no, okay. in, he died in 1997. Okay. And we really only became close in the last years of his life. But luckily, I kept a lot of notes. And there's, of course, a lot of other, there's quite a lot of research to do about his life. Uh, because he wrote a lot of articles. There were a lot of articles written about him, but I have a lot my own notes as well on our bond. And he was a wonderful, funny, very eccentric, brilliant, brilliant man. So I think it will make a very interesting long article. To well, we're looking uh, forward to reading that. So let me know when it comes out. I will, I will. Okay, so you're going to do a reading for us from uh, Loose Women, I believe. Could you so, tell us a little yeah. bit? and then you yeah. can start reading, yeah. This is Loose Woman, which the cover design, which I helped though, Megan Bez from Iguana chose the colors, which I really love. It's such an interesting design. I am going to read the prologue. So there's really nothing that needs to be explained because it's the prologue. Um, so it's called The Storm. What am I doing here? I was in a small orange tent in the middle of a sheep field in the center of France, sheltering from a violent thunderstorm and attempting to comfort the terrified handicapped man in my arms. What the hell was I doing there? I belonged in the theater for God's sake. I'd been voted best up and coming actress in Vancouver. A universe was waiting for me on the other side of the Atlantic and the Rocky Mountains. Not a safe universe, but at least familiar and mine, a tiny apartment with a cat, actor colleagues, a sort of boyfriend, a career that had been steadily building over this decade of my twenties, up and coming. But I was not on stage in Vancouver. I was clutching shivering Jean-Claude as a deluge battered our tent, lying on the hard ground, listening to the crash of thunder, sheets of water hammering our flimsy refuge, I worried the tarp would be whipped away, leaving us exposed. I pictured us running through the rain-lashed fields, me and my two wards, Emile, the sweet giant with the mind of a child, and little psychotic Jean-Claude, whom I was now holding close, stroking his hair, trying to appear calm. It was August of 1979, and I was an assistant at a large community in France one of a growing number of these communities where people who are intellectually disabled live and work side by side with people who are not. Nothing had prepared me for this new reality, and yet to my astonishment, I'd taken to it. Though the days were challenging and surreal, filled with struggle, discomfort, and even anguish, I was enjoying them. Living and working at L'Arche was an extraordinary experience. There was a great deal to be learned from a small group of damaged Frenchmen, my housemates. I thought of my best friend, Gail, the reason I was in this bizarre situation. Why don't you stay a while, she'd asked during what was meant to be a brief visit with her and her French family. And instead of heading safely home, I'd taken the offer seriously. It was a treat I'd found to be back in France, my home for a year as a teenager, 
It gave me pleasure to hear the French language flowing from my mouth, to feel so at ease in a foreign country, especially this foreign country, my father's favorite place on earth. What would dad think or Gail to see me now cringing as cracks of thunder shook the ground? T'inquiète pas, I whispered to Jean-Claude as he nestled closer, breathing hard. Ça va bientôt passer. Don't worry, it'll soon be over. It did me good to be brave for him. But it was true. The gale didn't last much longer. The rumbles grew softer and more distant as the storm diminished. My companion's rigid body loosened and he fell asleep. With relief, I extricated my arms from around him. There would be no sleep, I was sure, for my insomniac self. Give me my own bed, I grumbled, burrowing deeper into the mildewed sleeping bag. Who in her right mind would volunteer for this? Yet while I flailed back and forth under the soft patter of rain, listening as peace returned to the universe, a voice in the back of my head was still relishing the cosmic drama above. How incredible that I, Beth Kaplan, Vancouver actress, was right in the middle of it. Volunteering to spend a few months here might be one of the wisest decisions I, the most indecisive person alive, had ever made. I wasn't sure, but the notion was starting to come clear. Lying beside my slumbering companions, I brought back my first unforgettable contact with Gail's new French life. In the early 70s, after she and I graduated from Carleton University in Ottawa, I flew off to theater school in London. Gail, profoundly moved after hearing a lecture by the deeply spiritual Jean Vanier, had flown to France. Vanier had described how, living in a small town in northern France in 1964, he'd realized that countless handicapped people were shut away in huge prison-like mental hospitals. A fervent Catholic, he made the decision to invite two such men to live with him in his own house nearby. An idea groundbreaking in its simplicity. He opened the door of his home to two people in need. Thus he founded L'Arche, the Ark, one small house that quickly grew into a series of houses around the world where physically and mentally challenged men and women live and work in community with assistants who are not handicapped. Gail went to spend a year volunteering at Vanier's first L'Arche community. Also working there was handsome Stern Alain doing his compulsory French military service as a conscientious objector. In no time, it seemed, Gail wrote breathlessly that they were getting married. Married? Almost no one I knew was married. We were too young. And anyway, marriage was stuffy and bourgeois, too conventional for us wild and crazy children of the 60s. Gail was the funniest woman I'd ever met, brightening the world with her irresistible sense of humor. How would that lightness and merriment survive the drudgery of marriage? But Gail and Alain, only 22 and 23, were old-fashioned Catholics. So marriage it was to be, one October Saturday in 1971, in a village north of France. I'd have done my best to fly across the Atlantic for this event, but luckily I was already at school in London, so didn't have far to travel. The weekend was memorable. My friend hadn't lost her love of fun, but she did look pale and overwhelmed. It was clear Alain's parents fiercely disapproved of this match. At the wedding, all Alain's haughty, disapproving upper middle-class relatives seemed to be wearing dark blue Chanel. 
Gail's down-to-earth working-class family from the suburbs of Montreal included an aunt in a homemade lime green hot pants suit. Two other disparate groups completed the guest list, a gang of long-haired university graduate hippies in bell bottoms and miniskirts, young friends of the bride and groom, including me, and the handicapped men and women of L'Arche with, at their center, the charismatic Jean Vanier. Vanier was tall and gangly with a long, narrow face, big, crooked teeth, and a blazing smile that engulfed his face and caused his warm eyes to disappear. Though wanting to be near Jean, drawn by his magnetic pull, at the same time I was deeply disturbed by the crowd clustered around him. I'd never been near handicapped people before and found this group frighteningly deformed with twisted bodies and faces and speech. But though many of them at random times made startling jerky movements and embarrassing grunts and shouts, no one paid any attention. And there, walking down the aisle, was my beloved friend. There she was standing by her man, promising in French to love and obey forever. How mature she is, I thought. How brave. How insane. Such a declaration of faith in a man and a shared future was unimaginable to me. At the end, before leaving the ancient church, the guests were asked to speak their thoughts aloud. Several thanked God for the marriage. I stood and thanked God for the gift, the incalculable gift of Gail's laugh. One more paragraph. My encounter with Jean Vanier's friends that day had been my only contact with the mentally and physically challenged until this summer. Now here I was, just turned 29, an actress who temporarily left behind a blossoming career and a social life unhinged after a decade of bad choices. The wrong drugs, the wrong men, possibly even the wrong profession, the right booze, but far too much of it, usually to be found in a small Vancouver apartment with her cat. Now living in an ancient farmhouse in central France with six severely handicapped men. At the moment, trying to sleep beside Jean-Claude and Emile in a sodden tent in a dwindling thunderstorm in a sea of sheep. The motto of L'Arche was changing the world, one heart at a time. So far, the place was working wonders with mine. Oh, thank you very much, Beth. Did you go back? Have you been back to France? Yes, you'll see at the end of the okay. book, I've, I went back to L'Arche and there's a picture of me with Jean-Claude, you know, oh. 30 years later, he's still there. <laughs> I was gonna ask, did you marry him in the end? But I guess not, he stayed in France. <laughs> definitely not, no, but okay. it's really an amazing bond. Wow, well, thank you very much for being on our show. And um, I guess I'll direct people to your website, bethcatlin.ca, if they- bethcatlin.ca, uh, and there's a blog on my website and there's information on how to buy my books, the four, four books, particularly those women, but also the book about writing, if people are interested, True to Life, 50 Steps to Help You Tell Your Story. So it's all on bethcatlin.ca. Thank you so much, Deanie, it's been a pleasure. It's been so much fun, well, thank you. For more upcoming episodes of the Artsy Raven about writing and publishing, visit us at jfgarrard.com slash podcast. A reminder to Patreon subscribers that there is bonus content available for every episode on the Patreon website. 
If you enjoyed the show, you can show your appreciation by buying us some digital coffee. The Artsy Raven is produced by J.F. Garrard. The voice in the show's introduction is Chris Gorman, and music is by Tim Moore. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe. Thank you.